This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. A couple of months ago, I got sent a video of one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Someone had purchased a house. At the end of the garden was a small shed. It had a toilet in it. It was like an outhouse, a long drop. Got the loo. Yeah, this is fixed in place. You can't lift this up at all unless you trip the release mechanism. In this video, someone reached out, Which is out here. and pulled a lever at the base of this toilet. The whole wooden structure then lifted away from the floor and revealed a ladder leading down into a bunker below. And the counterweight system. I'm just going to go down the steps the stairs. The person climbs down the ladder and arrives in the chamber with some desks and cans and papers. Got a hook here, which is part of the release system for the door. Elephant shelter type arrangement. A couple of tables, or a table and a bench. There's actually a an air vent below here. Put this down. They then reached into a sideboard, pushed another lever. It gives access to the door. And that revealed a secret. To go in. In there was a wireless and an escape tunnel. It was a perfectly preserved special operations bunker from the Second World War. Over here, we've got what was going to be an escape tunnel, but uh, that was abandoned. Well, obviously, I want to look into this a bit more. It turns out that there are these special operations bunkers built all over Britain during the war, particularly in the beginning when Britain faced an invasion scare by the Germans, who'd conquered France and the Low Countries in short order in the spring and early summer of 1940. Some of you will have heard of the Auxiliaries. This was a, a special unit we've only just really learned about the existence of. Local men recruited along the east and southern coasts of Britain who were trained to stay behind in the event of a German invasion, to go underground, emerge and carry out acts of sabotage and assassination against the German invaders. Anything to try and slow down that German juggernaut and give British regular forces the chance to counterattack and drive them into the sea. They were assumed to have a life expectancy of two weeks. They'd either be found, killed, or they'd have to take the cyanide pill they'd been given if the Germans were attacking their position. The story came to me from Andy Chatterton. He's a brilliant historian who dedicates his time 
to an organization called the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team. And they look for these bunkers. Most of them are only really discovered when someone falls into one by accident on walking their dog in the woods, or when a tree falls over and the root system reveals this bunker buried in the ground. I got in touch with Andy and we were chatting and he said to me, the area in which I live, an area called the New Forest in southern England, is an area where we know there's going to be bunkers because it was a prime spot for invasion, but none have ever been found. It's a gap in his map of the country. So I assembled a crack team. I got Andy to come to the New Forest. I got Mark Hayway. He's a local New Forest historian with a specialization in the Second World War. And I got my trusty podcast producer, Mariana. This time she wore appropriate footwear. We cut through the dense forest, the thick undergrowth. We came across some giant anthills. We bushwhacked through forests of bracken to see if we could find a bunker for ourselves, looking for the remnants of a top secret unit intended never to be found. And let me tell you, unusually for a podcast like this, we found something. Yes, we did. We crashed through the undergrowth as Andy and Mark told me the incredible story of this elite team of silent assassins who volunteered for what was essentially a suicide mission, a very far cry from the dad's army idea of the home guard that we've ended up with. Enjoy. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Andrew and Mark, we are here in the beautiful, picturesque, historic village of Bewley. It's a sort of unspoiled 18th century village, but we're not here to talk about that deeper history. We're here to talk about its role, well, the area in the Second World War. Before we go anywhere else, so talk to me about Bewley. Where are we now? Um, so at the moment, we're just sat off the high street. Uh, Bewley Village itself has got a really interesting Second World War history because if you think about just a short radius, there was so much going on. Bewley itself was set up as an anti-tank island. There were hidden pillboxes in the village, some of which still exist yeah, today. you can see them, can't you? you can, well, you can if you know where to look. Yeah. Um, the Home Guard, there were 60 uh, members of the Home Guard locally. Um, but also you had the spy school, a finishing school for spies for the uh, Special Operations Executive. Um, they were secretly based in houses around Bewley Village as well. There was lots going on. You had Wrens from Exbury. They lived in the hotel we just walked past only moments ago. Um, that's where they were billeted. There were also free airfields within probably a three-mile radius. You had RF Bewley, um, Lymington and Needsall Point. So there was loads going on, including potentially auxiliary units <laughs> we're talking about today. Set the scene for me. You've got the fall of France, Belgium and the Low Countries. Hitler's armies are in northern France just across the channel here, 60 miles from the Isle of Wight to, to Normandy. Uh, there was an invasion scare, wasn't there? And how did, how did Britain react? Yeah, a huge invasion scare. And actually, uh, the perception of how Britain reacts is very different to the reality. Ooh, uh, the, the perception of Britain in 1940s, to my mind, is essentially Corporal Jones and Dad's army standing on the cliffs with pitchforks. But the reality is there were huge layers of secret civilian defence in place ready for essentially a suicide role to slow up the German advance. So this isn't, the auxiliary units are not about long-term resistance like the French resistance. It's not about kicking the Germans back into the sea necessarily. So the arm, that's the army's job. The it's Germans job. land on the beaches, the regular army and, and the home guards, yep. the so-called dad's army. They, they turn out and they try and drive the Germans back in the sea. So what are these auxiliary units? Exactly, so in France and the Low Country, as the, as the Germans kind of flew through 
the spearhead would fly through and then supplies would come up behind them and nothing was stopping that supply chain. The spearhead can't keep going unless it has fuel and ammo and food and supplies. So uh, the auxiliary unit's job is to essentially, as the Germans entered their area, to simply disappear. They, their family and friends had no idea where they were going. Their wives had no idea where they were going. They would disappear to a secret underground bunker where they would stay during the day. And then at night, they would come up and destroy ammo and fuel dumps, railway lines, airfields, assassinate German officers, assassinate British collaborators. Anything that would slow down the German advance and give the British regulars a chance to reform and counterattack. And they would be utterly brutal and utterly efficient in the execution of the defence of this country. It goes against so much of what we think of Britain in 1940. This was dirty, horrible guerrilla fighting. They were, we might talk about it later, but they were given huge amounts of, of weapons, but their main weapons were silent weapons, so Fairburn Sykes knives or, or knobkeries or, or anything like that, anything that, that, that would allow them entry into the thing that they wanted to blow up so they could get rid of a sentry silently, probably dismember his body to scare the, his comrades, blow up the thing they wanted to blow up and get away. Because they only had two weeks, they couldn't afford to get into a running battle with the Germans because that would shorten the amount of time for them to be effective. So silent, dirty fighting. And do we know where all these, these bunkers, this infrastructure of resistance would have been all, all around the country? So the auxiliary units are almost all in coastal counties because they're anti-invasion. They're not long-term resistance. So they're from the Orkneys, down the east coast of Scotland, uh, northeast coast of England, southeast corner, south coast, southwest and south Wales. There's nothing on the west side and there's nothing interior apart from Worcestershire and Herefordshire. Patrols are made up of six to eight men and there were about six and a half thousand men joined between 1940 and stand down in November 44. And where did they tend to be, these these yeah, so hideouts. <laughs> the hideout, well, they were called hideouts initially, and then that, that was thought to be too negative, so they were called operational bases. And these were tended to be five to ten miles inland, so they weren't caught up in, in any kind of initial wave of, of invasion. And they are just the most remarkable structures. The army was meant to come round at the end of the war and blow all these places up, but because at the end of the war the auxiliary units just disappeared back to their normal lives, they'd all signed the Official Secrets Act, these things couldn't be found. So there's lots of them, lots and lots of them that haven't been found that are still waiting to be discovered. We're going to go and look for some of them. I've got a map of the New Forest here. Let's have a... It's weatherproof, obviously, that's why it sounds plasticky. So here's Bewley, and we're at the heart, really, of this vast New Forest. It's, it's a new forest because William the Conqueror established it as a royal hunting ground, so it's only a thousand years old, so it's reasonably new. And it's been protected, more or less, over the generations, it's still a big patch of almost wilderness, really, and right in the heart of a very busy part of southern England. And so if any... It is the kind of place where you think some of these might have survived because there are big patches of heathland and woodland which not much development has occurred. Yeah, not much development. And also, crucially, as Mark was saying earlier, airfields are military infrastructure. So, you know, lots of big manor houses where Germans were likely to take as, as HQs, and they were, they were targets as well. So auxiliary units were set up in areas where there were key targets, so a main road, railway, manor house, airfield, something that they could hit immediately that would cause damage. What's your gut telling you guys? We've got the map here, we can go anywhere, we can trespass, I can ask, and ask for forgiveness rather than uh, ask permission. <laughs> I think my gut is there's definitely one 
this area. Right, so we've got a big hand. Oh, that's, so, so for listeners at home, he's just pointed to about 20 square miles of forest. Okay, well, that's the expertise we're looking for here, buddy. It's not exactly Indiana Jones, is it? We're digging in the wrong place. Okay, so we've got a big patch of heath and some woodland here just to the west of Bewley. Well, what's the best thing next, chaps? Should we go and have a look? Let's go and have a wander, shall we? Yeah. See if we can fall down a hole. We're entering the car park. Is this is this your mate here? Yeah, Who's that looks guy? that looks like Harry. So I've met Harry a few times out here before. Um, he's got some great stories and he's got a lot of local knowledge. So I'm hoping he'll be able to help us today. Right, let's go and see Harry. So you're a man of the forest? Yes. Yeah, so I've definitely been here all my life. How, well, that's not, not that long, of course, because you're a young man. But how many, when you used to explore here as a, as a boy at school, were you? Yeah. Well, I used to live in Sway, which is the village over. And so, Harry, when you were exploring the forest as a youngster, yeah. what kind of things would you find in this area? Like down in Brockenhurst, we were finding trenching tools in the river. We'd find mess tins in the river. Over there, we found a plane crash. And that's not surprising, Mark, because this was so militarised, this area. Exactly. And actually, within a three-mile radius uh, of all the, the aircraft coming out of Bewley Airfield, 119 pilots lost their, lost their lives flying out of Bewley. 39% were actually killed in a three-mile radius. Yeah. So there's loads of crash sites around here. It's incredible. So loads of crash sites we got. Um, and then in the bill at the D-Day, there was huge concentrations of men and machines here as well. But today, we're interested in 1940, we're interested in the invasion scare. So do you think, Harry, you've got any little insights what might be around from that period? What have you got for us? We did find a bunker in the early 90s that was over there and it was underground. Trying to find it again will be a nightmare because it was underground when we found it. <laughs> How did you find it? I just tripped and I heard tank hollow. No. And we sort of scurried around the foliage and the dirt that was on the ground and there was a manhole cover and we being like you do. What's that doing there? Andrew's just sounded. Just... I mean, it sounds promising. Yeah. I don't want to get hopes up, but it sounds promising. You can't see this, but it's like a dog with his ears pricked <laughs> up now. He's sniffing in the direction. Should we, should we stroll over and have a look? Yeah, it's a wonder. We're coming here to this. I love this little red brick cottage. It's in the middle of nowhere, this cottage, isn't it? It's totally isolated. Absolutely. And it's actually, it belongs to the Forestry Commission. And to this day, forestry keepers live there. And in fact, during the war, the forestry keeper who lived there was an auxiliary unit patrolman. Well, I, I imagine he's the perfect demographic, right? He, he well, knows exactly. the forest better than anybody. He does, and he knows how to use firearms as well, because they were probably keeping deer down with their guns during that period, I would assume. But his name is Jack Humby. Um, he, in, I think, the late 90s, he got his memoirs committed to paper and talked about bunkers that they put to the west of Bewley Airfield. But frustratingly, he never gave a location. Yeah, they never do. So we know the guy, he lived in this house. We know that he said there were bunkers in this area. And now we've got you saying you came across a bunker in the 90s. So I'm feeling kind of confident here. <laughs> I'm an eternal optimist, that's the problem. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being an eternal optimist. There we go. You can start to see all the foundations of Nixon huts in here. They're a bit overgrown at the moment, obviously, because of the bracken, but there's yeah. about 20 of them in here. Wow. So this would have been a really heavily militarised part of the airfield. Um, and to think there was all this tight security here, and literally 500 metres uh, to the east, 
we have the bomb store, which would have needed huge security. So I like the idea that Jack Cumbie was potentially sneaking around at night building bunkers with 200 heavily armed men literally on the corner by his house. But he would have been such a, he was a new forest native. Exactly. He would have found it so easy to move through this landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is a really good example of how, because obviously the invasion never came, so they did lots of training and their training was against allied bases. Yeah. So they used to really annoy British Army Air Forces because they basically proved how inadequate their defences were because they'd sneak in, right, like, uh, explosion on a plane, make their way out. Uh, Montgomery, when he headed up uh, 12 Corps in Kent, uh, Peter Fleming, the brother of Ian Fleming, the creator James Bond, who was core part of the auxiliary units in 1940, went through into Montgomery's headquarters they planted time pencil explosives in the flower pots outside his office. And the next morning they went in and said, we got through your defences, we planted explosives in the flower pots. And Montgomery, in classic Montgomery style, said, there's no way you got through my defences. Just at that moment, the flower pots started exploding outside his window, proving the effectiveness of the auctionists. No. Yeah, amazing. And his brother Ian Fleming would have written that up in a James Correct. Bond book. Correct, yeah, wow. absolutely. Do you know, you've talked to so many of them, sadly now nearly every one of them has passed away. Were they, were they prepared for that kind of suicidal role in the event of an invasion? How did, they, how did they get themselves ready and prepare them and their families for it? Their families weren't prepared uh, because they would have just up and left them. At the most vulnerable point for a family, when an invading army is coming to your town or village, the man of the house or the son would simply disappear. Wow. They weren't like bloodthirsty killers, but they, all of them kind of understood that bigger picture of if the Germans had succeeded in taking Britain, then essentially Western democracy was done because the Atlantic Ocean is a big old space. So they understood that the sacrifice they were to make and potentially that their families unknowingly were going to make was absolutely worth it. And how were they recruited? How, how were these men chosen? Did they get us a tap on the shoulder? <laughs> yeah, essentially, yes. Intelligence officers were sent out the length of the country to these kind of vulnerable coastal counties they usually had some kind of affiliation with the county. They'd then find a spot which would be good for a patrol to be, so somewhere where there is a good target, so a road, a bridge, a railway line, an airfield. Then find the key man, is what they called them, in that area. So a farmer or a gamekeeper, someone with a little bit of authority. The type of chaps they were recruiting, obviously, had joined the LDV because that's... You know, that's what you wanted. Uh, so, and, and what's the LDV? Local Defence Volunteers. Right, so, so that's what we, we now unfairly call Dad's Army. Correct, yeah. Later called the Home Guard. So they would recruit them, and then it would be up to the patrol leader to recruit his own patrol. So he'd sign the Official Secrets Act, would usually be asked something like, do you want to do something a bit more interesting than the Home Guard? Yeah. Sign the Official Secrets Act, be told what their role was. And it'd be completely up to that patrol leader to then recruit his patrol. So usually, because of the secrecy, it would be friends or family, colleagues, people that he could trust, but also uh, had an intimate understanding of the countryside around them, which is great. But then whole families recruited. So we've got a uh, patrol in Devon where there's three sets of brothers. And if you're an invading army and suddenly three sets of brothers have disappeared from one household, suddenly that whole household is under a spotlight. And also the brutality of the Orcs units meant that if a patrol member got injured on the way back from an operation and couldn't get back to their operational base, their bunker, the patrol was obligated to leave them enough ammo to shoot some Germans but, but themselves or to shoot that 
patrol member because they couldn't allow them to fall into the Germans' hands and point out where the operational base was. So if you think if they're recruiting family and friends, that's a huge ask. So very conceivably, you'd have to shoot your, your brother or your a relative or a great friend. Absolutely. And it, yeah, it's utterly ruthless. So Ken Welch, who's still with us in Cornwall, uh, followed his father one day. His father was the patrol leader in Mabe and uh, Ken found out where the operational base was. <laughs> and his father had a choice then when he found out that his son knew whether to bring him into the patrol or to add him to a list of people to be assassinated because he knew where the operational base was. So brought him into the patrol. But the first job the Mabe patrol had to do as the Germans entered Mabe was to go up the hill to a cottage that overlooked their operational base and assassinate an elderly couple because the elderly couple saw these guys going in and out oh, no. every weekend training. It's the first job that 16-year-old Kenwood might have to have done. He's gone up the road and assassinated this elderly couple. So we think of Britain in 1940, partly through famous TV shows like Dad's Army and other things. We think of us muddling along, yes. gentlemanly, amateurish, decent chaps, yep. standing up against these iron fist of, of German totalitarianism, but these British men were prepared to meet fire with fire. Uh, absolutely. So the intelligence officer, who we just talked about, who set up all these patrols in his county, would have been a target for one of the patrols because he knew what? where every operational base was and every member of the, each patrol. So he was a huge risk if he'd fallen into German's hands. So he was a target. The local policeman would have been assassinated because he would have to have checked their names. He wouldn't have known they would join the York's units, but would have to have checked their names and seen these names together. So he would have to have gone. So the first victims, as it were, of the York's units would have been pretty much innocent British civilians. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Isn't it? In the event of an invasion, start killing a few Brits first and then turn your Correct. attention to the invaders. Right? Yeah. yeah, indeed. Did people ever get cold feet and think, I don't, I don't really fancy this? Yeah, yeah, there are a few examples of where auxiliars joined and then either got too old or the training was too much for them or they didn't like being underground and they left, which meant, of course, that they were then added to a list to be assassinated because they knew exactly where the OB was, they knew exactly who was in the patrol. So former members would be added to a list. There's an example where... Oh, that's so, your former comrades. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's an example where a, uh, a father joined the auxiliary units, left because it was too much for him. Unknowing to him and unknowing to his son, his son joined the same patrol, was recruited to the same patrol. It was only years and years later, in the, in the early 2000s, that the son realised that he had taken the place of his father and that his father would have been one of the first people to be assassinated. How old is this kind of track that we're walking on now? So 1941 it would have been built? This is, yeah, this is, we should say this is a wartime concrete track we're on now. Yeah. Like so many tracks in the New Forest, yeah. we're all used to... Exactly, and this would have been one of the main free routes into the living area, which we're coming in now. Okay. And obviously the actual main airfield was kind of behind us somewhat, but now it's a campsite. Yeah. Um, as, as a lot of the airfields were turned into yeah, the New Forest, yeah. actually. Because you have, to, you have to have some kind of infrastructure in order to bring the materials in to build an operational base. The patrols tended to build their operational bases themselves to start with, often with not much success, because right. you have to have a certain amount of expertise in order to breathe underground. But then they brought in the Royal Engineers, but they brought Royal Engineer groups in from different parts of the country. So they'd come in, build two or three, and then disappear just in case the Germans came. Wow. So you didn't want to use a Hampshire yeah. Royal Engineer group who would here and could take them straight to the 
OBs, but they could build an OB in a day. They had one officer really? and 25 men. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And so, yeah, we should talk about it. What are we looking for? I don't even know yet. So it's an underground bunker. How big? What kind of materials? So if it's intact, we're looking for a hatch that's kind of flush to the floor, like a manhole cover. There's usually then a going down about six foot or so with a ladder. Usually at the end of this, there's like some kind of blast wall just in case the Germans have discovered the entrance and dropped a grenade down. There's a blast wall protecting the main chamber. So you've got to go on a sort of jink through jink. into yeah. it, yeah. Then you're into the main chamber, which is essentially, as described, rather like an Anderson shelter. Uh, there'll be bunks and tables so the patrol can rest during the day. Uh, then there would be... So well, I should, I should shelter, so co corrugated iron? Corrugated, elephant arm, yeah, elephant so strong. Arm, yeah. I should say, actually, the, the way of entering these OBs are absolutely ingenious. So it could be anything, that, lots of them are on counterweight systems, so you would pull a root, or what looked like a root. Come on. But that would lift up the hatch and swing it around. There would be, uh, you like could just stamp on it and it'd flip up and what? swivel around. Or there's examples where you have a different coloured marble, depending on which patrol member you were, and you'd roll it down what looked like a mouse hole, but that would travel down. You have got to be kidding me. And then the patrol down there would notice you. This and is not helping up. my optimism. This is, that is incredibly, <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. So then the main chamber with the bunks, and then through to a second smaller chamber where you'd have an Elson chemical toilet. Some of them had kitchens, which aren't ideal for remaining secret, but what they used to do is funnel the chimney up a fake hollow tree, so the smoke dispersed at the top of the tree line. So a German patrol making their way through the forest wouldn't be able to okay. see the smoke. And then there'd be an escape tunnel, quite long, made out of big drainage pipes. Uh, so another way of getting out. Another way of getting out. So if the Germans came in the front through the hatch, the escape tunnel would take that. And they'd, the escape tunnel would be disguised as well. So the exit would be disguised as like a badger set. It would come out in the middle of a wall and you could move the part of the wall away and escape through there. Most patrol members realise if the Germans have found you, you're in trouble. You're done. How many intact ones like this have you found and have been found in the country? Not very many intact ones. I'd say maybe tens that tens, we know of, yeah. but there are so many. We, we have a good idea of where the patrols were, but there are so many where we, we have no idea where the operational base is. And we found tens of them. Uh, how intact. Many, how, intact. How many think there might have been at, at peak? Just rough ballpark Six figure. or 700, I think. Oh, wow. They're out there, folks. Yeah, game on. Andy, you mentioned um, it was like a manhole cover could sometimes be used. I haven't really mentioned this yet, but a couple of years ago, I did find a manhole cover in those woods. What? It didn't really occur to me what it could have been. I mean, the likelihood is it was part of the sewage disposal area for the airfield. I'd really like you to have a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. If I can find it again. Absolutely. Well, I think that sounds like we should definitely go and have a look okay. at that. Well, maybe that's the first thing we do then, because it's not—it's about five minutes this way. Yeah, let's have a look. At the end of the war, the uh, army was meant to come and find these operational bases and destroy them, but obviously by their very nature, they're hard to find, and most of the auxiliaries just went back to their daily lives and yeah. didn't say anything, so that's why they, so many remained about. And we say at the end of the war, the auxiliaries were stood down once it became very clear that Germans weren't going to invade after D-Day, after the liberation of much of Western Europe in late 1944. So what, what happened there? 
Yeah, they were stood down ridiculously late. I mean, the threat, the threat of invasion had well and truly diminished, but their role had changed slightly. So they went to anti-raiding roles. They, uh, during D-Day, the patrols from all over the country were sent down to the Isle of Wight to protect the Isle of Wight from potential counter-attack. They guarded the royal family uh, when they went to Balmoral. Um, so their role changed, but basically, because these men were all in reserved occupations, they couldn't be called up anyway. And their training was as such by kind of 42, 43, that there's no point in putting them in the ordinary home guard. So they kept them going. And actually, in 43, someone went round and started to list, and this is why we know so many of them, the names and addresses of auxiliars, which seems, on the face of it, a strange thing to do for a highly secret organisation. But actually, we think, because now you've got six and a half thousand men highly trained in sabotage and guerrilla warfare. They're a really useful asset. So keeping an eye on them for any kind of future war to bring them out of retirement, as it were, is a really sensible thing to do. So those six and a half thousand men in late 1944, it was, thank you very much. Please forget about everything you've done. It's over. Literally, they got a letter that said, thanks very much for your service. There will be no public recognition. Wow. They got a small lapel badge, which they had to pay for themselves. But of course, no one else knew what the lapel badge was or what it represented. So Ken Welch used to wear his to events in the 1950s. And he, uh, he was at a hotel somewhere in, near Bristol, I think. And he was, as he said to me, he went to go and point Percy at the porcelain. <laughs> and uh, another chap stood next to him who also had the lapel badge on. They kind of nodded at each other didn't say anything and just went their separate ways because That's they both cool. signed official wow. secrets. And then the, the bunkers, in some cases, the manhole cover was closed and that was it. They yeah. were never, never reopened until Absolutely. today. Absolutely. And there's, some, there's great stories of, there's, uh, they're extending the road between Exeter and Plymouth and up a big hill called Holden Hill, kind of using a big JCB to dig out. And this is the 1970s. And suddenly this old chap was running up the hill saying, you better stop digging. So literally about to go through the roof of this OB, which oh, was chock-a-block full of explosives Oh still. my goodness. Now we've come on to a, an, another open bit. Mark's getting very excited, he's leading the way. The problem is, I'm seeing a lot of bracken here. This is the enemy, isn't it? There is a lot is of bracken. It? There's a lot of, you know, this kind of bushy stuff. So hopefully everyone's got long trousers on today. Uh, yeah, well, I, the ticks are going to have a field day <laughs> with my legs. Um, where we're heading at the moment is still part of the airfield. It's where I said about that manhole cover I found. Yeah. So maybe we can uncover that. It could be a complete red herring, but thankfully we've got Andy here to diagnose the situation. <laughs> well, this is what we have to go off. We have to go off rumour, like the information you collected, Mark, rumour and myth. And so many families were told at the end of the auxilia's life that, oh, I was part of a secret resistance force. And they were just dismissed by family members as kind of going a little bit, a little bit delally in their old age, but actually, we're quite often telling the truth. <laughs> so it's, it's rumour you have to go off. Keep an eye out for snakes, sir. Keep an eye out for snakes, okay. Just add to our list of challenges today. What sort of snakes do we get here, Harry? Adders. Adders, yeah, adders famous new forest adders. I'll take up the command position at the back of the line, if that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. I almost stepped on a rattlesnake in the Grand Canyon once. They said, whenever you go to the toilet at night, you pee and we all slept on the ground. Whenever you pee in the river at night at Colorado, whatever you do, always take your headlamp. And I was like, ugh, I'm literally three meters away, it's ridiculous. Got up and then 
walked a meter and went, oh God, turned my headlamp on and there roll, rolled up in the footpath in the warm sand, enjoying the warm sand from the, the sun of the day before, was a huge diamondback rattlesnake. Oh and I would have just stepped on it. We had no satellite phone. It would have been really bad. Yeah. Well, hopefully we won't get anything like that today. Now we're coming down to part of the effort where it really gets wild and woolly. Okay. And you actually, you, you very rarely see anybody out here apart from people like me and Harry. <laughs> History heroes is what I call you. But also that's probably the same in 1940, which makes it the perfect place to put a underground bunker potentially. Which way did we come in last time, Harry? That was it that way. So they're hiding among the trees there. We've got some of the famous New Forest ponies. They just roam wild across this landscape. How does this landscape look? I, I, you get a feel, don't you, as to what works and what doesn't. And this, this definitely works. Okay, good. Is there a water source nearby anywhere? Yes, yeah, there there's is. A there's a stream. stream. There. there we are. I think it's the start of the Limington River. I'm trying to get my bearings. Oh, is it the start, is start it? of the Limington River? <laughs> yeah, start of the Limington River. Oh, there's a bit of concrete. Indeed, yeah. I believe that's part of the airfield from when because they used to, obviously we're down at the bottom of a hill now, going into a gully, would you call it, or a valley? Yeah. Uh, you've got the stream there, so I, this is where the sewage would end up. Okay. Thankfully, 70 odd years ago now, so. Thank we goodness should... we don't pump sewage into streams anymore. Well, rivers. That's right. <laughs> We've learned that lesson. I mean, yeah, I believe that's part, that certainly doesn't look auxiliary to me. No, that's way too above ground. Uh, but the manhole cover is pipe. this way. Mark is getting faster and faster as he gets closer to the target. There's one around here somewhere. All right, well, there's a couple of bricks here, aren't there? Certainly a big flat area. I covered it over with leaves. I can't bloody find it. That's all right, let's have a little search. It's good. Oh, here it is. I found it. Oh, you were in exactly the right place. What? So, as you can see, it's not been disturbed for many a year. And I don't know, it just... For well, me, I've seen it over the years, but never really thought much of it. It's something, isn't is it? Is it a red herring? Is, if we look at these trees, I mean, these ones certainly in the last few decades that are immediately around us. That one, definitely not. I mean, it's an interesting that this area is bare. There's no right. kind of going in this It does feel unnaturally bare, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I've never too. seen a like very specific manhole cover used. No, uh, the ones that we found are all random. Yeah, they tend to be, but that's not to say at the end of the war they just use something to... Oh, almost seal it. Yeah. Okay. But it's interesting, isn't it? Really it's interesting. Nowhere. Yeah. It's a good position kind of midway up a hill. Andy, what about this one? Is that Ooh. kind of concrete anything of val in in interest? Because there is a hole there, but the tree, Harry says, has been there for years. So. Yeah. As far as I can remember, that tree has always been there. Well, that's interesting. interesting. It's like your, your <coughs> stick can go down quite far. I'd say that there's too much of a lip. Okay. Probably these things are absolutely yeah. flush to the ground. Much more like that one where there's there's no lip at all. So um, we got we got some red brick and then we got a concrete slab that's been cracked by a tree falling on it here. I mean that kind of slab is what quite often what they use to sling on top at the end of the wall. Right. Um, but I just feel. It's just a bit too exposed, right? Well, Andy, I'm looking into the hole. I can see red brick going vertical shaft, the red brick shaft. Basically. I'm wondering if it's all to do with the waterworks of some kind or another. I mean, with the airfield. If I was to put a bet on it, I'd say it's all to do with the sewage, part for the airfield. 
Um, it's just that one manhole just seems yeah, so interesting. out of the way of everything else. When we had a little dig round in, the, in our youth, it, it was sort of manhole size. This with, one? This one. With a slab just slabbed on it. But we could never get close to it because of the tree. And that tree just hasn't rotted because it's still alive. <laughs> There's usually some giveaway in the ground as to where the bunker is and it... Always so you, put down you, to it. You have cameras right? that you can drop down there, presumably, do you? Yes, or? yes. It might be worth coming back and doing Yeah. That. If there are, in the corners of the shaft going down, metal rungs... Oh, I wish I'd brought my jackhammer with me. <laughs> do you usually? No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's exciting, isn't it? Hang on. Oh, you're getting there. Ow. Oh, my finger. Come on. I think there might be a bit of rebar, you know, that's what it is. It feels like it's... Uh, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. That's reinforced concrete. I don't see any metal things, annoyingly. What's down there? Just loads of logs, which is really... I mean, it's about the right size, I'd say. No metal bars. No rungs. No rungs, but there's a strange entrance here. Do you see? Yeah. So I far. mean, it's the right shape. And, and the entrance hole is right, so you go down and then... And sort of in. And in. And there is a, I mean, if you can see here... You've got a mound there. You've got a mound there. Right. It'll be good to go further down and see if you can see any trace of an escape tunnel. My only worry is that it's quite prominent right. above the surface of but the ground. But if wa water comes down this hill, would that have washed yeah, potentially, earth away? Yeah. Same era. If I was that. a betting man, it's all to do with the sewage system. Yeah. But I'm not. But we never you never know, do you? That's the problem, Andy, is all this stuff here doesn't yeah, feel Yeah, I think the red brick here doesn't feel right, does it? Fill it in? Yeah. Or... Yeah, I think so. Moving the rock back. There we go. Well that. done. Like nothing had ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> we found whole... a World War II feature after all. Exactly. Guys. It might be a sewage. So... I'm really glad we didn't get Andy down for nothing now. At least he can say he's had a little something. <laughs> At least he can say he's dug his hand into an old yeah, sewer. Exactly, place. exactly. Not anyone can say that, you know. Well, <laughs> if we head towards Baker's Copse, isn't that that area you thought you might have found that one you went in? Yeah. Harry's leading. Take us, Harry, come on. <laughs> Got a good feeling. But this is the thing about 1940 and Second World War. This stuff is still around us. Yeah. You see like a pillbox in the middle of a field in isolation until you go and go and have a proper look and see it's connected, see where the camouflage is connected. It's just everywhere. Yeah. yeah. How do you wear your hiking boots, Yana? A long-time listener to this podcast will be aware of the ongoing saga of producer Mariana's footwear. And she wore sandals when we were climbing a big mountain in the Egyptian desert. Now, she's been on the podcast long enough. She is wearing a good sturdy pair of hiking boots. How are you, are you enjoying those, Yana? <laughs> uh, fashion rating three. It's not what it's about. Practicality oh, 10. So I just poked you in the eye with a stick. <laughs> Big answer. Problem is, this deposition's so dense, isn't it? It sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Oh, is that a. Oh. That would have been. That would have been better than endurance, no question. <laughs> oh, I just thought that might have been a brick there. All right, folks, I guess we need to call it a day here. Let's do what the Brits always do when uh, life is against them, and that's head to the pub. Sounds like a great idea. Let's head, but, but I've, got one, I've got Hang one on. more thing. I think there's another site we can head to where I think we've got a much better chance of finding something because we know precisely 
where a bunker is and possibly some aerials going up tree. We might have to knock on a couple of doors. Andrew. Should we try that? You bet, let's go. Okay, let's go. Well, let's go to the pub first. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're looking for World War II bunkers. More coming up. Thanks for downloading this episode of Dan Snow's History. If you don't already, you're going to want to sign up to our subscription service for this podcast, either on Apple or by heading over to History and taking out a subscription there. And you're going to have to do it because we have an exclusive series in August unravelling the well-known, the unknown and the should-be-known stories of great explorers who traversed uncharted territory seeking fame, fortune, riches, or just satisfying their curiosity. From the first Polynesian wayfarers who used the stars to make their way across the dark Pacific. To James Beckworth, a former slave who lived all the drama of the American frontier. And Nellie Bly, the investigative journalist who attempted to traverse the world in less than 80 days. And finally, we're going to debunk the many myths and legends of Marco Polo. Four episodes dropping in the exclusive subscription feed. Sign up to get it, folks. $5.99 a month. You can go to the Apple app to sign up or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. (laughs) 
Well, we just finished a delicious lunch in this pub, the Philly Inn. It's a bit of a landmark, the Philly Inn. It's been here for, well, I imagine it was here in wartime, wasn't yeah, it? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a 15th century pub, actually. Okay. I might be wrong, but I have to double check that. So we can imagine the, we can imagine the auxiliaries coming in here for a pint every now and then? Yeah, absolutely. And it's got, you know, a link to where we're going to next. Uh, right, tell me, where are we going? So we're going just up the road uh, to a place where we know a special duties branch uh, civilian wireless operator lived. Now the Special Duties Branch was very different to the auxiliary units in so much that instead of recruiting youngish men in reserved occupations they recruited the elderly and mothers and doctors and vicars, people who could stand on their street and watch the German army pass through and they were really highly trained in recognising insignia and um, regiments and weapons and numbers and direction of travel and vehicles. And they'd write all this information down in very basic code on a piece of edible paper, put it in a dead letter drop, so something like as basic as an OXO cube tin on a windowsill or a loose brick in a churchyard or a, or, a, or a tree stump with a revolving top with the message put in a spit tennis ball and rolled down. We think this pub that we're in right now was one of the dead letter drops, probably the last one before it went up to the uh, wow. civilian world. How do we know that? Through uh, rumour and myth and village gossip. Great and it would end up with a civilian wireless operator in a place like we're, we're going to now. This particular example had his wireless set in a disguised chicken shed. That civilian wireless operator would take the information and pass it on to ATS girls who are in secret bunkers, like the one we're searching for today in the Yorks units, and they would then pass that information on to local command and GHQ. And the aim is to take away the mystery of the blitzkrieg, so knowing exactly where the German army were, which direction they were travelling, which regiments it were, how many were there, and then allowing GHQ to make informed decisions about British counterattack with the regulars, knowing where they're heading to counterattack them in their strategic place. So as well as these network of stay-behind resistors, you've also got a network of eyes and ears. Essentially spies, yeah, on the invading army. Again, like the Yorkshire units, not for any length of time. This is purely anti-invasion, so they weren't expected to, to last Survive. any length of time. Yeah, because the wireless sets, for example, can't be moved, they're in set locations, so it's not going to take the German army very long to triangulate and find the source of, of signals. So again, two-week period, probably max, uh, to be effective. Um, and so the radio operator would have been in that bunker. There was no coming and going, was there? No need for it? No, correct. So the civilian wireless operator would be in the bunker, passing on information to these ATS women, who would, once the Germans entered their area, go to their secret bunker and then remain there until the British Army had relieved them or the Germans had found them, in which case they were to burn their wireless sets and commit suicide with cyanide tablets or shooting themselves. But once down there, they were in just the most horrific uh, environment. There was a chamber where they, where they slept and where their wireless sets were. There's a separate chamber where the batteries were stored and where the generator was. And, and the exhaust coming off the generator was just absolutely horrific. And we've got, you know, during training to get them used to being under this underground for such a long period of time, up to potentially two weeks, these ATS women, they couldn't come back out. Um, so just absolutely awful. So why are you feeling confident? What do you think you know about this one? So part of this group, the Special Duties Branch, were a number of Royal Signals men who were attached, 15 or so, who would go around the country and they would help the ATS girls in their bunkers and the civilian wireless operators with their wireless sets. So putting up aerials in trees or up steeples in churches, um, monitoring the wireless sets, changing batteries, things like that. And one of them left a vague map of where each of these wireless sets were, were located. And then through research and village gossip, and uh, we've managed to kind of pinpoint exactly where this one was in this area, uh, which is just up the road.
And so we're about to go and bang on the door. They're unsus- the owners of this house are unsuspecting. Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah. Right, I'll go and press the buzzer. <laughs> I pressed the buzzer. I'm not sure there's anyone at home. The, oh, there's a car arriving. Oh, oh. So I've got a very strange, it's a very strange story, this. <laughs> These gentlemen are World War II historians. Got Andrew and Mark. This is Yana, my producer. Um, we have reason to believe there might be a World War II radio, well, bunker or station on this property, which was originally in a chicken coop. Oh, really? Yeah. So we'd love to allow you in and show you the very kind people have let us in the property. I mean, this really is strange. But anyway, Andy <laughs> has got a tree that he thinks is identified from testimony of previous people that are familiar with the property where there might be an aerial running up. So we're just walking now to the southern edge of the property. We don't think here that means there's a bunker under the ground, do we? No, it in was this probably case, in the chicken coop. It would be in the chicken. Okay. So the other example of the chicken coop we've got is in Norfolk, where you go into the chicken coop, there'll be actual chickens in there but the end wall is false and you put your finger in the knot in the wood no. and that moves it across and inside at the back is, so a, is a wireless operator. So there would have been a structure like that here, but sadly it would have been... It sounds like it was torn down. Oh. But it would have been about, you know, here yeah. with the aerial going up the tree. And it's perfect because the, we know the, the pub just up the road was the last dead letter drop, so the message would be dropped there. The last runner in the line would probably use this trackway coming along here and there'd be some kind of dead letter drop here, maybe an ancient bath, um, where the message would be dropped and then the wireless operator could easily pick it up without being seen and send the message via the, via the aerial. So should we try and get round? Yeah. Is it, is it, where, how far down is the gate, is it? So we've got a very old bit of barbed wire fencing, which has actually grown into the bark of this mighty oak tree. Ah. So what we're looking for is a little needle in a haystack here. There's a stump of a big old tree here. Yeah. Uh, there's wires in this tree that isn't barbed wire. There's what and it looks like, look. This, no. this isn't barbed wire. This looks more oh, like, a, more like, ah. go, go, to go. me, this looks more like electrical and or radio wire. And there's wire look. inside it. That is electrical wire. See? What? I found something. What? <laughs> Don't yeah, be there it is. Oh my God. Congratulations, oh, folks. Well done, Mark. You legend, Mark. Andy, why are you so convinced that it might be a wartime era? Well, one, there's no other reason for this wire to be inside a tree. It's insulated, there's wiring inside. It's like electrical cable. It's not barbed wire. It's not wiring for a fence, because it's insulated. It's the kind of wire that you'd see inside, you know, electronics. And, and it's the right color to disguise it down the tree trunk. And it's coming out here. I mean, not a million miles away to where we thought it was. Yeah, well, it's just one, actually just one or two trees along, yeah. And the fact that it's coming out, it might be that they went further down, they went further down, there's underground here into the chicken shed. So we've made a discovery today, Andrew. We have, <laughs> thank goodness. Well done, Gina, lads, <laughs> well done, we found something. That's fantastic, isn't it? Who knew we could get so excited over two bits of wire sticking out of the trees? <laughs> well done, folks. We found quite a lot of interesting stuff, I think, today, to be fair, didn't we? But one definite confirmation of that kind of special activity going on here. Um, what, when the war came to an end, what happened to these men and women? So uh, the special duties branch was stood down in July 1944. 
Uh, the auxiliaries were stood down in November 44, and essentially they got the same letter. Thanks for your service, you're not going to get any public recognition. And they just went back to their day jobs. The auxiliaries went back to being farmers and miners and gamekeepers. The, the special duties branch operatives went back to being mothers, vicars, doctors, and didn't tell anyone. You know, 90% of them went to the grave without telling their family anything of their wartime activity and what they were prepared to do during war. And I bet because there was never an invasion, they probably thought, well, compared to the lads who went abroad and saw active service, there's no point us showing off about it. But that doesn't take anything away from their extraordinary bravery and, and the service they rendered. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's exactly it. And because they weren't called upon, many of them just thought that they didn't do anything particularly special. They signed the Official Secrets Act and that generation took that incredibly seriously and most of them went to the grave without saying anything because of that. They also went to the grave without saying anything because they didn't feel like they'd done anything. But also, from an auxiliary's point of view, they were tasked with taking out members of their local community. So you're not going to bring that up in the pub in the late 40s, early 50s. That's a bit of an awkward conversation. So they kept quiet about that because they didn't want to be seen as brutal and, and bloodthirsty. And, and what's amazing is the auxiliary units and the special duties people, they could have been serving metres apart. They didn't know each other existed. Yeah, because they both signed the Official Secrets Act and they were different parts of the same pie, but they, they had no idea about each other. Except for there's one fantastic example uh, where that wasn't the case. An auxiliar was patrolling his local woods, found a hatch to what he recognised as, as an operational base, but far too close to his own operational base to be another auxiliary patrol. He found his way into the bunker, went down the steps, and at the bottom of the steps was an ATS girl pointing a revolver at his head because it was a special duties branch ATS bunker. All she knew was a heavily armed chap in Denham had entered her bunker. All, all he knew was this woman seems to be sending messages via wireless sets. They agreed not to kill each other. Thank goodness, because they went on and got married. Uh, they couldn't tell anyone how they met because they both signed the Official Secrets Act. They had a child, uh, and he now marches past the cenotaph with us every year to represent both arms of the auxiliary units. An amazing story. Thank you, gentlemen. That was an outstanding day. Thank you, Dan. How do you enjoy your search for the new forest? Cracking, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, so much to see. I've had an amazing time, so thanks for coming down. It feels like we've pulled on a few threads that we need to uh, see where they lead as I well. I think there's definitely going to be a postscript or two here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>